Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host Gavia Baker Whitelaw. Hi there. So this week we watched Jane Campion's historical drama Bright Star about the English poet John Keats and his relationship with the love of his life, Fanny Braun. Told from Fanny's perspective, it's notably different from the usual biopic format featuring star turns from Abby Cornish and Ben Wishaw. So um, this is one of my favorite movies ever. I love this movie so, so much. It was requested by Patreon subscriber Hannah. So huge thanks to Hannah for giving me an excuse to talk about this movie for an hour. I actually didn't get a chance to rewatch it before recording this episode because I had a crazy weekend, but I have seen it so many times that I do not think that will be a problem. Gavia, however, watched it for the first time for this episode, so I'm excited to get to talk to you about yeah. one of my faves. I, I loved it. It was amazing. I didn't really know what to expect because while I do love Ben Wishaw, I've actually not seen any of uh, Jane Campion's movies, which kind of surprised me. I assumed I had. I've just seen Top of the Lake, which is her incredible and extremely upsetting TV series, which is very different different in tone and content to this. I also am annoyed by most traditional biopics, although I was not expecting this to be that. We will be talking about biopics a lot because um, there are certain frameworks that they usually use and this movie avoids all of them. But yeah, this movie was just lovely and just really interesting from just on an artistic level and in terms of what perspective was used with the main characters and the idea of a non-traditional Regency romance, since we're so used to seeing kind of Austin adaptations in this format. Yes, and this is, I mean, I obviously love Jane Austen. Yeah, no, same. Uh, Austin adaptations. (laughs) Yes, but this is very different from those stories, although it shares some DNA, obviously based on a real person and the sort of conventions of behavior are notably different from in Austin adaptations, which I think probably would be what most of our listeners are most familiar with from this time period, because it's pretty much the same. It's a little bit later than a lot of Austin stuff, but um, you get a lot of the sort of social conventions that are really important, like, you know, the sort of rules of propriety, chaperones, etc. But also they're kind of just behaving however they want to behave. Like, people were just people, and like, they're definitely alone together a fair amount of the time because the setup of the film and of real life was that John Keats lived in a house that kind of abutted Fanny Braun's house. So he was not a member of the family unit, but he was very involved with them. And so he wasn't really seen as a threatening sort of outside figure. So they had opportunities to be alone a lot. And um, the strict rules that we think of, I think, oftentimes being at place in the past, you see how they are and are not enforced in this movie in a way that's really smart about sort of historical reality, I think. And the performances are all completely incredible. So they really do feel like real people without feeling overly I mean, modern. does Ben Wishaw ever put a foot wrong? No. I've never, I've never seen him be bad no. in anything. So... <laughs> This was the first thing I'd seen him in. Um, It was his breakout role. The movie was kind of disappointingly not a huge hit in terms of box office or really critical reception. I mean, it was well-liked, but it just just kind of didn't go anywhere, which I think was really too bad because it's a masterpiece, in my opinion. Yeah, I was kind of looking at the just the general reception it had. It seems like people were just saying, oh, you know, this lovely, subdued, uh, Regency-era love story slash biopic. And I'm like, no. It's very clearly distinct from the vast majority of films in this genre. (laughs) Yeah. And 
the Oscars are obviously not the end all be all of cinema at all, but it's one of those movies where like the fact that it didn't get a bunch of Oscar nominations is kind of bizarre because it's very accessible and good and yeah. a costume drama, but they've kind of moved away from that. But like, it's, it's really brilliant and original and interesting while also not being um, particularly like alienating or experimental, right? Like it's just, it's enjoyable. very engaging and charming, you yeah. know, and likable characters. I mean, obviously, Abby Cornish was not famous at that juncture and still is not famous now. I think maybe at the end of last week's episode, we were talking about this a lot a bit and you were kind of saying, why isn't Abby, for- Abby Cornish more famous? And having watched this movie, I'm like, why not? Because um, first of all, she's like a blonde Australian and a rapper, which is like the opposite of her role in this. And she's done just like a wide variety of films that aren't particularly big or actually particularly interesting. Like she's not done a whole bunch of bad movies, but it kind of seems like she's had a lot of middling roles. And it's like, she's clearly fantastic in this. So maybe she's got a bad agent. I don't know. Mystery. Yeah, it's very peculiar. I've seen her in a couple other things, not too many, because her career, as you say, has kind of been not great. She was in a film called Candy with Heath Ledger a couple years before this um, about an Australian couple who are struggling with drug addiction. I saw that in college. I saw it probably the same year that this came out. I don't remember it that well. They were both incredible in it. She was very close to Heath Ledger, who obviously died young. And um, she said in interviews for this movie that she kind of was using that experience for a lot of these sort of emotional scenes in this film, including one at the end, which we'll talk about later. But um, I think that she is, I think her performance in this is like one of the best performances I've really ever seen in a movie. She is beyond. And it's not particularly showy until the sort of big dramatic stuff at the end of the film. But um, she just, again, feels really real. And one of the things that I love so much about the film is that She's having this um, romance with this genius poet, which again is, you know, based on a very famous real life story. Keats had this intense romance with Fanny Braun, this woman who lived in this house sort of with him. And she, her passion is for making clothes. She's not a particularly intellectual person. She's obviously smart, but like she doesn't really get poetry as such. But the movie doesn't condescend to her at all right? Like it's told from her point of view. And the movie obviously loves poetry and loves Keats's poetry and really values that, but it doesn't diminish her perspective or think less of her because she hasn't read Paradise Lost, right? Like it's just that they have different experiences and like he doesn't care that she has a different experience from him. Yeah, because there's this really fun dynamic between the main couple and Keats's best friend, Charles Armitage Brown, who is a less famous poet who's kind of best known now, I think, for being one of Keats's friends. And um, a bunch of other sort of like romantic era artists and stuff show up at the end, like barely named. So it's not like one of those biopic things where they're like, oh, hello, Charles Dickens. You know, it's just this bunch of guys. And they're just like not really relevant because they're not relevant to Fanny Braun's life. But um, right from the very beginning, you have this dynamic where Keats is living with his friend who has more disposable income. Like he's essentially being supported by Charles Brown. And Charles Brown just dislikes Fanny from the get go. And he just thinks she's frivolous and she's 
flirtatious and shallow and isn't going to be any good for Keats because he has this tremendous respect for Keats's work and is trying to nurture him as like a younger poet. Jane Campion just like explores this relationship in a really interesting and entertaining way because Charles Brown, to me at least, was simultaneously you're like, oh, this guy's really annoying and he's playing the role of like, you know, the guy who's sort of splitting up the main couple. But at the same time, he doesn't really seem like a bad person. And until quite close to the end, I was like, yeah, he's fine. Like, I don't agree with him because I support like the main ship. <laughs> but, um, you know, he's, his heart's in the right place. And also he and Fanny are both like really petty people who like have dug their heels in from the get go, which is so often what happens when people decide they dislike each other. It's very hard to change someone's mind, even like when there's evidence to prove that by that point, Fanny was very dedicated to Keats. But it's just this really like funny performance from Paul Schneider. And I was like astounded because Paul Schneider is one of those sort of American comedy, oh, it's that guy actors. I know him as the character who, according to Wikipedia, is Mark Brandanowitz in the first two seasons of Parks and Recreation. But anyone who's seen Parks and Recreation will remember him as just that guy who's in Parks and Recreation for two seasons. And then everyone forgets he exists after he leaves because he's like not relevant compared to the other characters. So unfortunately, that is kind of his main mark on cinema history, in my opinion. He's had a very prolific career starring in various types of movies. But um, clearly he's like incredibly talented. And in this film, not only is he playing this really distinct an unusual funny character who is like a very difficult line to like follow because he has to simultaneously be like not hateable and also constantly interfering in the main character's love life but also he has a Scottish accent and he does a good Scottish accent and I was very impressed. Apparently what happened is uh, Jane Campion saw him playing like a supporting role in the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford and was like oh I'll cast this guy as a poet who's from Scotland in this other movie. Um, I don't think that poet actually was Scottish. There wasn't any particular evidence that he has a reason to have a Scottish accent, but he does very well. And um, I was impressed. <laughs> well, I Googled this morning. I think there's not very much known about him. He definitely wasn't born in Scotland. His father was Scottish. Maybe there's like a line in a biography or something about him having picked yeah. up the accent. I don't know. But um, one of the interesting things about this movie is that like, I remember reading stuff about Keats and his circle after this film, and I think Brown, I don't think there's very much known about him. There are a couple of concrete things that happened in this movie that definitely did happen in real life, including uh, the thing at the end that you alluded to a few moments ago that we'll mention later. But um, he's definitely, like, his entire historical stamp is his relationship to Keats, and otherwise he has not left much of a record. And they've essentially kind of created this personality more or less from scratch because circumstantially speaking he needs to be there and it makes for a good story. I also, when I was kind of reading up afterwards, um, a lot of the kind of surviving letters we have from Fanny Braun were her writing to Keats's sister, Fanny Keats, who uh, doesn't appear in the movie. So <laughs> Yes, um, and I don't remember where Fanny Keats lived. Keats also had a brother named George who he was very close to and wrote to a lot and before the timeline of the film, George Keats had moved with his wife to America, this American South, I think, somewhere. I feel like they maybe were in Georgia, but maybe I'm just conflating the name George with Georgia, but it was definitely the South somewhere. I feel like this Keats sister was also somewhere else. Like they were definitely not um, in physical proximity to each other, which brings us 
to Keats himself, who we probably should have introduced uh, more concretely by this point, but we're very enthusiastic about this movie. So I saw this film, one of his first public screenings, the Telluride Film Festival in 2009. I was there as part of their student program, and it was an outdoor screening of the last night, and it was just like an idyllic experience. And I had read some Keats poetry before in like for school, but I didn't know that much about him except that he died young. And this film really was what made me interested in him. And um, I now, like, he's one of my sort of favorite historical literary figures as a result. I think he's really fascinating. And obviously the romantics as a sort of cohort are famously interesting. They have lived very dramatic lives. You know, Shelley and Byron are also great. Like, they just, there was a lot going on there. But what's fascinating about Keats is that he's really the only person from either the first or the second phase of the Romantics. So like Coleridge, etc., were sort of the earlier phase. And then Shelley and Byron and Keats are the, come up a little bit later. And but all of all of those people, except for Keats, really come from money and aristocracy, which is normal for British writers up to that point. Obviously, they're and not indeed now. Yeah. In fact, that very controversy is currently unfolding on social media today because our Chancellor said that everyone who works in the arts should just go and find a different job instead of getting any kind of government support for their work, which is why everyone who is an actor from Britain, with the exception of John Boyega, is a white person who is probably went to Eton and is a lord. So... Yes, I think it's pretty much John Boyega and Jack O'Connell, and like they are yeah. the every sole other exceptions. every other person is Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, it's bad. But Keats does not have that background. Um, he was born in Moorgate, the specific location uh, no one knows. He thought he was born in the stables, but it's not clear, or like the inn with the stables where his father worked. His father was a hostler and died when he was eight, and his mother died of tuberculosis. Morgan, are you going to explain to the listeners what a hostler is? Works with horses. Thank you. I just, I was waiting to see if you just dropped that word in there without explaining. Sorry. His father like <laughs> fell off a horse when he was eight and cracked his skull and died. So that's a very, wow. you know, okay. 19th century way of meeting your it end. It sure is. That's also like the first, the first paragraph of like every famous person from the 19th century is like whatever horrible traumatic way one or both of their parents died. Yes. And his, his mother died of tuberculosis when he was 14, which was how he would later die himself. Yeah, in this movie, I was like, you see Tom Keats right at the beginning of uh, the movie, obviously John's brother, and it's freaking Ollie Alexander. And I was like, there's this, the cameos in this film. Ollie Alexander, British gay icon and lead singer of the band Years and Years, is playing John Keats's younger brother in this film. And I was like, Ollie! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone in this movie is somebody. And they're all great. Thomas Brody Sangster doing his classic thing of playing a five-year-old even though he's 46 years old. <laughs> um, yeah, there was a lot of tuberculosis in the Keats family, obviously. Uh, very upsetting. But um, his mother, I think, was kind of more middle class. He was supposed to have inherited some money from her, which would have been a pretty sizable amount of money, although nothing compared to what, you know, Byron should have had until he blew all of it and then was, you know, impoverished, I'm using heavily sarcastic air quotes but like no one told him i mean it, it was not handled very well he he didn't have any money basically as an adult and trained to be a doctor which he did not enjoy and spent most of the time he was supposed to be working on that uh, writing poetry which you know was not helpful for his career and income stream 
But he's really the only writer of this group who had a profession, as opposed to just being like, well, I'm going to go off to Italy and live in a big house with like weird animals and do whatever the fuck I want, which is what Byron did. And the the problem of money was huge throughout his life. Like he was constantly worrying about this and struggling. And that was why he was living with his friend Brown, who, as you said, did have more money. It was a problem with the relationship with Fanny because he really had no prospects and his poetry did not sell when he was alive. He had real admirers within the literary community. Um, Shelley was obsessed with him. The letters <laughs> between Shelley and Keats are really great. They met once or twice, but they definitely were not like friends. Like Shelley and Byron were very, very close and that was not the case with Shelley and Keats. But um. Shelley just thought he was a genius, which obviously he was. But the letters that Shelley writes Keats are like this incredible florid things. And then Keats will like write to someone else being like, I got a letter from this guy. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> That's exactly the vibe I would have predicted based on the knowledge I have of Keats from watching this film. Yeah. And I mean, he was had a perfectly like cordial relationship, but Keats, his whole attitude toward the other romantic guys was a bit like, what is going on? Like, this is... Like, have you all considered chilling out? Yeah. And then after <laughs> Keats dies, Shelley writes one of his great poems, Adonais, but it's, like, all about Keats and Keats dying, and it's this, like, elegy to him. But, like, he didn't really know him. And it's so over the top, and, I mean, clearly very sincerely felt, but, like, it's just very funny. And so Keats is definitely, like, removed from this, that sort of social circle, and the people who show up at the end of the film and are kind of sprinkled throughout who you alluded to being kind of like other historical figures who she doesn't go to great lengths to name, they're people who, because I now know a fair amount about John Keats, like Joseph Severn is one of them. And he was the painter who went with Keats to Italy at the end of his life because they thought it would be better for him to be in a warmer climate because of his lungs. And he painted a famous portrait of Keats that's now like the image that is known of him. But... He's famous because he went with Keats to Italy at the end of his life. Like, that's what his claim to fame is. It wasn't like he was surrounded by a bunch of other people who were really independently famous. He had some connections to, like, Charles Lamb, I think, and some of the other writers of that set. But he was pretty disconnected, I think, from a lot of the other stuff that was going on because his social standing was just not the same and he didn't have any money. So... That makes his output interesting because he clearly just felt so compelled to be writing what he was writing. And, like, the drive must have been so strong that he just had to do it, even though it was really not easy for him. But it also allows this movie to be kind of an enclosed thing because it's not as concerned with the larger conversation around like literary history right like that's not really in it but it's more about this romance and it makes it a perfect choice for telling a biopic about a great man that isn't like here's a great man here's someone achieving a lot of really impressive stuff and like hobnobbing it's literally the opposite of that because most of it is like him and fanny braun sort of hanging around in a field <laughs> or hanging around with her family which was like my favorite element of this film was just they just have like lovely kind of family portrayals of like her, her little, she, she has two younger siblings, one of whom is seven or eight or something. And is a girl called Toots. 
And then she has sort of a younger teenage brother who, as I said, is played by Thomas Bodie Sangster, who is an, ac- an actor you will all have seen in Stuff. He plays the little boy in Love Actually, and he is 30 years old, but he looked 12 for about 15 years. So he was a child actor for like a really bizarre length of time. I think he was still starring in teen movies like last year. Um, and in this, he basically doesn't have dialogue, but it's such a good no dialogue role because obviously the two siblings have to be sort of essentially acting as chaperones for Fanny a lot of the time, but also she's sort of looking after them if they ever want to go into town or something. So they're kind of there as a unit. But obviously at the same time, Fanny's having these like very important conversations with Keats. And also they have Fanny's mother, who is just this like really sweet person. And they have these very sweet family scenes where sort of Keats is kind of member of the family and also kind of not, because the whole sort of driving conflict in the latter half of the film is the fact that everyone knows these two people are in love and obviously they're allowed to hang out together and stuff, but they can't get married because he doesn't have any money and he doesn't have any income. So, you know, Fanny's mother is kind of gently trying to discourage her away from him, but not in a full sort of fictionalised Jane Austen way where they're like torn asunder because, you know, this is a real family of people who are just quite nice and want to keep each other company and do the right thing. But from most of their perspectives, the right thing is not allowing Fanny Braun to marry a guy who has no money and then like starve to death in a garret. Yes. And they're sort of middle class, like obviously living very comfortably in this house, but her father is dead and... They're not like she's not gonna have some big dowry that will like yeah. sustain them indefinitely. And also kind of the, the production design I think is kind of notably different from quite a lot of Regency era dramas because like we obviously do have quite a lot of evidence to work from from what Regency interior design looks like. And with the exception of the Kira Knightley uh, Pride and Prejudice, which is like intentionally very sort of gritty and muddy, usually there's a lot more sort of decoration and like floralness to the sort of the locations we see in like this era of film. And in this movie, it really felt like it was a much more kind of bare house, which simultaneously was sort of making it clear that while Fanny Braun's family is like comfortable, they're not like spending money on kind of decorating their house and stuff. But it also, to me, kind of highlighted the beauty of the outdoors because the whole movie is like, look at these wonderful flowers. Listen to this bird song. See how inspired Keats is. And you're like, yeah, the outdoors is really good. (laughs) Well, they wanted to shoot in the Keats house in Hampstead in London, um, which is where these people really lived, which is a place that you can go visit um, in times when it's not a pandemic. Um, It's one of my favorite places in the world, it feels very sort of sacred to go there. Like people are very quiet when they're walking around the Keats house. It's beautiful. But it they had to find a bigger house. So they just could not get the cameras inside. Like it's it's very small. Like it's a nice house, but in terms of like a movie set, like it would not work. But it, it looks like this. Like it's not particularly elaborate. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of houses that are just kind of like this dotted around Britain, basically. Yeah. And I think you're right that uh, it conveys a lot about their standing financially and she you know fanny is someone who is sort of comfortable enough that she hasn't really suffered in that way in her life and like she doesn't understand what it would be like (laughs) to be married to someone who's penniless but she's also not a totally spoiled brat either which is I mean, she is a little bit of a brat, but in a different way that's like quite appealing, which is part of why Brown doesn't like her because she is a little bit of a, you know, she's kind of a teenager, right? Like, Yeah, yeah. But she makes all of her own clothes, which uh, 
is one of the coolest things about the movie. The costume design of this film is beyond. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like crucial. They spend like equal amounts of time focusing on her like obsession with fashion and his poetry. And especially kind of towards the beginning when they first meet, instead of it her being like, oh, I'm just meeting this genius John Keats who I'm recognizing his talents, even though he's not getting positive reviews, which is like the shit version of what this movie would be like in Hollywood. They have this kind of set up where we're introduced very early on to the fact that she is absolutely fascinated by dressmaking. She's clearly been doing it her whole life. And she's also very imaginative. So she's very much got that sort of art student vibe where she's wearing some quite experimental and almost ridiculous looking outfits um, that she's like constructed herself and used very ambitious techniques. When she meets Keats the first time, she's kind of quite interested because he seems nice. And then the second time she's read his poetry, but she's kind of almost nagging him a bit because instead of just politely being like, great poem, she's sort of like, oh, I didn't love it. (laughs) And then... You know, you think you're going to get a little explanation of what the poem's like from Keats, but instead she just like starts talking about how she constructed the collar of her dress and stuff. <laughs> I think the way the the writing stuff is handled in this movie, I've never seen a film that handles that subject matter better. Yeah. I say as someone who writes fiction and not poetry, but it's really hard to make films about writers because it's a completely internal process, right? And like there are plenty of examples that do not work. You can't do it. And the same goes for anything that's about genius, whether it's writing or some other art form or science or whatever, right? Like it's all happening in somebody's head. And so you just watch it and you're like, sure. (laughs) Okay. And I think that this movie succeeds really well by using various techniques to kind of get at that. And one of them is having this character who is not, frankly not that impressed initially by what he's doing, right? So it demystifies a little bit the aura of like, oh my God, it's John Keats. Like, she's just like, whatever. They also, Jane Campion is, a, is herself a genius. So she shoots him kind of in nature thinking about writing in a way that is just like really good filmmaking. You feel like you feel like you feel him thinking. But they also have a couple of conversations. There's one about negative capability, which was his big idea. That kind of like letting yourself think about something by not really thinking about it is like my extremely dumb way of describing negative capability. But like they talk about it in the movie in a way that is like he's trying to explain it to her without again being condescending. But like he knows that she's not like versed in these big intellectual concepts that he spent a lot of time thinking about, which is great for the audience, because if you're not someone who has studied John Keats, like you can pretty much follow what he's talking about. And Ben Wishaw is so good that you completely believe that he is this brilliant writer who has come up with all of this stuff. And Campion also integrates Keats's writing in the screenplay in a really, really smart way. Like there's a lot of it in the dialogue, but not in a way that feels burdensome. And then there are like poems sprinkled throughout the film in a way that again, doesn't feel like overwhelming, but enough so that you get that he is creating this stuff. And all of that taken together, you just kind of understand that he is all he's cracked up to be, you know, which uh, none of which would work if, if Wish I weren't as good as he, as he is in the movie, but yeah. She cast and I well. think that like Charles Brown's role is like really essential to that because instead of having sort of the girl be like, you're a genius, you're a misunderstood genius and I support you. 
you have basically Charles Brown has that role, but also because he's a poet, you kind of get the two different depictions of these people with this very unusual career that's hard to depict on screen. And so you have all the kind of practical elements to do with the fact that like Charles has an income, so he's a lot more comfortable and Keats doesn't. But there's also kind of a really great scene in the middle where they both kind of, when they move into the house that's sort of attached to Fanny Braun's family's house, uh, like Charles is sort of giving the Braun family a pep talk on how to live with poets. And he's like, oh, you know, if you see one of us just walking around in the field doing nothing, please understand that we are musing. It is essential to the poetic process to muse. This is a great part of the work. And in the background, like Fanny is like fully rolling her eyes. And it's just hilarious because like he's right. He's completely correct, but he's just explaining it in the most annoying way possible. And then like Fanny, Fanny's mother is like, well, you can interrupt us any, at any time because our thoughts you see are just very small. <laughs> I mean, I cannot emphasize enough how good Paul Schneider is in this movie. He's so good. <laughs> I never watched Parks and Rec, so I don't know him from that, but I had... I mean, he's literally a non-entity in it. It's yeah. hilarious. Like, every character is really distinctive, and then there's this guy who's there for two years, and you're like, who is he? I knew him from... I'd seen... I mean, I've talked about Jesse James before. It's one of my favorite movies also. He's... He's got a smaller role in that, but he's very good in it too. And then he played Ryan Gosling's brother in Lars and the Real Girl, which came out in 2007. So a couple years before this same year as Jesse James. And he is so good in that movie, playing like a very nice man who's kind of just like, my brother's having some problems and I don't know how to deal with this. And then this was a couple years later. And I remember thinking like, this guy is amazing. Like, wow. And then he kind of, he didn't vanish because he's still working, but he definitely like, had a moment where he was felt very prominent in terms of like well-reviewed films and then kind of went away a little bit. But this to me is by far his best work, even though I think he's great in other things too. And obviously the writing is a huge part of it, but he just nails so well this like very annoying person who... All of his like body language and like he just can't, he can't shut up. No. He just would It's like there's so many times when it's like if you just shut up, it would be fine. Like his problem would be solved. <laughs> but he's also very funny, yes. which makes him watchable as opposed to just being like, I fucking hate you. Like you're watching him and you're like, wow, you suck, but this is entertaining. Yes. And he completely loves Keats, right? Like that's the yeah. his problem with Fanny, not in like a sexual way, but like he's just jealous. He wants Keats to pay attention to him and be involved with him and like they go on this these like walking tours of Scotland and stuff and like he just wants he just doesn't want some girl to be creating a problem because he wants them to be buddies and have their own little thing and so for Keats to suddenly be like deeply in love with this woman is really not his vision of this relationship and he handles it in the way that many uh annoying teenage boys handle that sort of thing except that he is a grown man yeah he's like 40 <laughs> yeah but i remember seeing some long interview with him at the time and he was like yeah the piano is like my favorite movie and jane campion is like my hero and just like getting to be in this movie was i was just like so excited and i was like yes <laughs> Good. I like you. Um, but uh, I think everybody in the film is clearly so dedicated to it. I mean, this movie was made for like no money. A shockingly small amount of money. It's like a few million dollars. And it looks amazing. And everybody in it is amazing. And I think you can really sense 
how much passion and love there was from everybody involved. Like, they clearly were not being paid that much. But to get to be in a Jane Campion movie is a really big deal. And the script is incredible. So, you know, there you go. It's just one of those examples. Like, this is the last movie that she made, and it was 11 years ago. I mean, her films aren't really, like, money spinners. No. The piano made a ton of money. And I yeah. saw... So there was a retrospective of her movies at the Film Society of Lincoln Center a couple years ago. I saw her do a talk there. I saw a bunch of the movies that I hadn't seen. And I and the ones I had seen, I basically went to, to all of the screenings. The thing is, like, I'm, like, several of her movies were pretty badly reviewed. Yes. But is that just wrong? Is that just incorrect? So I don't think any of them are bad. I think a couple of them are, like, interesting but not great. The one that people have sort of um, reclaimed since it came out that it was definitely not well-reviewed at the time is In the Cut, which came out in the late mm-hmm. 90s. Um, it stars Meg Ryan. It's kind of a crime drama thing. I think Mark Ruffalo... Does Mark Ruffalo play a cop in that movie or just someone who's involved in trying to figure out what's going on? They have a lot of sex. There's definitely, like... And he's kind of threatening and you can't tell whether he's not good or not, but, like, she's being stalked somehow. I can't even remember. But it's it's great like it is a great movie and it was supposed to be nicole kidman um and nicole kidman uh, as she just discussed in an interview on the new york times this week um had a bad knee injury and just like couldn't do it and so meg ryan did it instead it is like styled like nicole kidman and is kind of acting like nicole kidman it's a bit funny but she's really really good in the movie and this is the phase when she was doing like all these romantic comedies and then she did this drama with jane campion where it's like Lots of sex. It's really dark. It's, like, not what people were expecting of her at the time. And I think critics and audiences were just like, what the fuck is this? Like, I don't want to be seeing this movie. But, like, I recommend it. It's it's really good. But I think, like, the piano made a ton of money. It won the Palme d'Or. It won Oscars. It was a, a Weinstein Company movie. And Harvey Weinstein definitely, like, flogged it a lot. And she definitely talked at that talk I went to see her do which was after the Weinstein stuff had broken about how he had kind of just like picked that movie as like the thing he was going to promote and I think they had some disagreements about it and then I think there I feel like he maybe had the next film she did too and that was when it got really bad between them just in terms of like creative disagreements she did not have great things to say about Harvey Weinstein you'll be shocked to hear and so I think Like, she benefited from the Weinstein machine with the piano in terms of just, like, financial success, right? And then after the fact, she was making these weird movies that, like, nothing happened with them. I mean, basically the only person I can think of who enjoyed a long-term collaboration, I guess, with the Weinstein sort of promotional machine is Quentin Tarantino. And everyone else that was like, they would either have a totally nightmarish experience from top to bottom... Or they would have one movie where he decides, like, this is the film I'm going to get Oscars for. And then after that, he'd just, like, murder them. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, she just went back to Australia and, like, did stuff there. I mean, it was yeah. fine. But I think she definitely, or she's from New Zealand, but she thinks she's worked largely in Australia. But, um, it, yeah, she, it, was, it just seemed like a kind of dicey situation. But she did The Portrait of a Lady right after the piano, I think. It was kind of her, like, blank check movie, as the blank check podcast would say. Like, she had... She could do whatever she wanted. And The Portrait of a Lady is one of my favorite novels. And that adaptation is bad and weird. Like, she doesn't 
get the book, oh, no. which sounds like bad oh, mean no. to say, because she like was obsessed with the novel since she was a teenager. She loved it. Like obviously, she has a deep connection to the to the source material. But like, I watched that film when I was doing my master's and like studying Henry James, and I watched it, and I was like, um, everything about this is wrong. <laughs> like every, it's it's interesting. It's really weird and interesting, but it's completely batshit. Like bizarre and it didn't make any money because everyone was like what is this like I, I don't understand so she's had this kind of up and down career but actors seem really dedicated to her like Nicole Kidman has worked with her multiple times and she's obviously a visionary and she's clearly specifically interested in the 19th century um, which is an area of interest for me too the piano is really influenced by like the Bronte's novels and the history of colonialism in New Zealand. The Portrait of a Lady is an adaptation of a huge 19th century text. And then this is going back a bit earlier in the 19th century, the Romantic period. And I think, even though I don't think The Portrait of a Lady works particularly, I think that she has a really, really good grasp in a way that very few people do. A, on the literature of that period. Like, she's obviously gets Keats in a way that is very moving if you're watching this film. But also on, again, just like how people actually lived, which is something that we talk about a lot. We talk about historical films, like we praised Portia Lady on Fire for doing this really well last year, too. But it is very hard to not have too modern a view when you're making these films, because, of course, we're living now. And I think she's just really attuned to the fact that, like, these people were just people. But also they did have their own particular sets of worldviews and complications. I mean, I do think that really comes through in the styling of Abby Cornish. Because obviously the costumes are incredible. They're by Janet Patterson, who also did the production design. It's very rare for a costume designer and a production designer to, to double up. But although the costumes are very like pretty and eye-catching, they're not flattering in a modern sense. And they have Abby Cornish wearing all of the underwear that someone of that period would be wearing which I think is absolutely absolutely kind of the crucial element here because you can have a Regency drama that like includes pretty realistic costumes or um, which is also like happens in most Regency dramas because it's one of those periods where the audience really knows what to look for like they know what to expect but once you have all the underwear and the kind of correct fabrics it's not like kind of making the body shape look like what we want women's bodies to look like it's not sort of like oh there's like a pushed up bust and then like a waist that goes in like basically that is a fashion which is really flattering if you're constantly three months pregnant which like a lot of people would be because <laughs> there's no birth control and also the, there's no bra like the concept of a bra doesn't exist at this juncture so like there's a scene where you know, she's wearing this gorgeous outfit and then she gets in the rain and she just looks like a sack of potatoes afterwards because she's got like 15 layers of petticoats and no bra. <laughs> um, and I just think that was like a really great kind of example of just the fact that it's not really catering to modern sensibilities. Also, she's got this like like completely straight hair with like a center parting and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't look skinny in this movie, right? No. And like Abby Cornish is beautiful. Like, a beautiful woman. They're, they're not styling her, as you say, to make, in like the most flattering sense from our point of view, but it doesn't matter at all. Like, she just, she looks great. She just looks great in a different way. And 
Ben Wishaw is tiny. He's so much smaller than she is, which I really yeah, like. Yeah, it's like when I was reading like interviews with Janet Patterson, she was kind of talking about how like the lengths they were going to to try and make them look Basically, she was describing them as two spoons. She was like, we want these characters to look like they fit together. But the fact is that sort of by nature, Abby Cornish is like a blonde, tanned Australian. And then Ben Wishaw is the absolute prototypical Victorian orphan ghost, you know? <laughs> so like they were kind of paying him in like bigger clothes to try and look and make him look bigger. And I was just thinking, if this is what he looks like when you think he looks bigger, like what does he look like in his natural state? It's like the <laughs> reverse just... of the Chris Evans and Snowpiercer problem, right? Yes. Where they're like <laughs> cutting off his lower layers to make him try to look less ripped. <laughs> it's not going to work. It's not going to work in this case either. Yeah. We should talk about the end a bit. Yeah. I mean, Keats dies. You'll be shocked to hear. He does. Yeah. Um, anyone familiar with history? We visited his grave. We did go to see his grave. We went to Italy back when you could travel. This was only last year. Really feels yeah. longer ago. <laughs> last year. Occasionally I'm like, wasn't it nice when I went to Italy with Morgan? I do have that thought process <laughs> also. But I uh, dragged you to, it's now known as something other than the Protestant cemetery. It's like the non-Catholic cemetery or something, because obviously it's not just Protestants buried there, but for a yeah. long time it was known as the Protestant cemetery, which is where he uh, was buried because he wasn't Catholic. And um, the first time I went to Italy, uh, like, you know, staying in hostels in college, I also dragged the friends I was with out there. It's like not central, <laughs> this place. And both times found it quite emotional. It's very nice. I recommend going yeah it's a very cool very cool location yeah Shelly is there too and I also went I went to Italy with my mother a few years ago and went to the Keats Shelley Museum which is by the Spanish Steps which is located in the apartment where he was staying when he died which we did not go to when we went but um if and you know anyone who's interested in this stuff or watches this movie or whatever and is fortunate enough to find themselves in Rome at some point in a distant future where, again, travel is possible. I cannot recommend that museum highly enough. They have a ton of stuff, objects and letters and things, which was really interesting, including an urn with a piece of Shelley's jaw inside of it, which I found... <laughs> a very normal, a very normal thing great. to have. Um, yeah, the, the sort of fetishization of like the bodily stuff of these romantic poets in the decades after was really remarkable. I mean, I think they would have loved it. Shelley would be like, absolutely keep my jaw. Oh yeah, 100%. Uh, I think Mary Shelley kept his like heart in a jar in her desk or something. I mean, these I people mean, his were... whole body situation was, it was a, it was a wild time. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, the room where Keats died, he was there for a few weeks, I think, maybe a couple months. It was decided he had very bad TV. And at that time, they thought it would, you should go to a warmer climate. Rome was, in fact, not the place where these people should have gone because it this, there was stuff in the air and it was not healthy. But um, they sent them all off there anyway. I mean, he was going to die regardless. So it's sad he died far from home, but um, it wasn't like staying home would have saved him. And they burned all the furniture and everything that was in the room after he died because it was contagious but you can they've replaced it with replicas that would be the same size and things it is tiny i mean i'm looking out at like half of my bedroom and i feel like that's still like too big for this room i found it really affecting to be standing there and imagining him in this like tiny space knowing he was going 
to die. The Keats house is also really beautiful and moving because you know it's the place where all this stuff happened. But being in that tiny space, I, I was pretty upset. And I think this movie, to get back to the film, does a really, really good job of conveying how awful this whole situation was and the sort of inevitability of this for all of them. Like, he clearly knows he's going to die and is pretty stoical about it, but obviously it still sucks. And both Brown and Fanny are just, I mean, it's, it's horrible. And when she finally finds out, she has this scene where she, like, completely breaks down sobbing, which is the scene where apparently she was thinking about Heath Ledger, which is, like... I mean, she has oh. she has a panic attack. She has, like, a medical yes, panic Yes, I mean, it's... I think she's incredible in the whole movie. This is just, like, one part of the performance, right? And she has moments where she's very emotional throughout the film, but, like, this is completely on a different level of a, emotion, right? So it really is striking to you watching it. And it's just awful. Like, there's, you know... It's just this tragic thing that happens, right? And then she, like, cuts off all her hair and walks through the woods and recites Bright Star, which is the poem he wrote about her and cries. And I mean, I always remember watching this just, like, bawling. I mean, it's really, really upsetting. But the movie as a whole, I think, is somehow, like, sad but not depressing. I mean, that's my feeling about it. Because it's so... It depicts the romance so beautifully and is so... It isn't nihilistic, I suppose, is the right way. Right, I mean, it's the it's a very appropriate for like a romantic era story because it's all about sort of you know the first blush of youth and flowers and you know scenes where people are just sitting in a room full of butterflies and you're like oh you know they're gonna die young but it's all very kind of lovely and romantic. Yeah, <laughs> and she did marry later someone else. Although she had the she kept I think she like wore the ring or kept the ring that Keats gave her for her whole life. And there's a photo that was taken of her. When she was much older, because obviously there were no cameras in the 18 teens, but she, she would have been in like her 50s or something. I have this photo on a postcard on my fridge and she is beautiful. Like you would not know this woman was the age that she was. And this is the mid 19th century. So you look at it and you're like, ah, okay. So, so when you were like 19, you must have been a fucking knockout. Like, yeah, I mean, just, it's, it's an amazing story. The, her letters to Keith have not survived, but his letters to her are around and you can read them. I'm sure they're on Project Gutenberg or something. I'll see if I can find a link. But I, I have read them and they are unbelievable. I mean, they read some of them in the movie, but you read them and you're like, well, yeah, no wonder this girl was just like, oh. <laughs> I mean, we've sort of out of time, but we should briefly mention also that the music and cinematography of this film are, I mean, the whole thing is just like pristinely made. I mean, I have to assume that the vast majority of this was filmed yes, in natural light. it certainly light. looks that way. Craig Fraser did the cinematography, yeah. and he's gone on to do a lot of great films, but this was kind of the first big one, and she clearly knows how to pick them because it looks beautiful. And uh, Mark Bradshaw, who went on to marry Ben Wishaw, congratulations to the two of them. Yeah, and per, per Mark and per Ben, unfortunately, that is primarily what Mark Bradshaw is known for, which we know they would hate because... Ben Wishaw would rather no one even knew that he had a personal life. Never mind the fact that we know that he's married. But um, they met on this film, yes. which is a lovely story. I don't know much about Mark Bradshaw's kind of 
work in general because he's mostly composed for quite small stuff or like theatre that I've not heard of. But he did do the music for Top of the Lake by Jane Campion as well as this. I love I the think music it's in this. Amazing. The soundtrack is great. Lots of Ben Wishart reading Keats poems as well as yeah. the- Regrettably, I will not be listening to that because I don't want to hear poems on top of my music. I want to just hear the music. I mean, there's but, also um, tracks that are, that are just the music. Yes, but I yes. um, <laughs> feel like he must be using like period-appropriate instruments because it sounds quite- No, he is not. Well, that is what I want to talk about because I was like, I love this because it's really interesting. It's like, so basically when you're doing kind of a historical drama, you can go kind of three general ways. You can go hyper real and just choose music from that period, which in this case would be the early 19th century, which probably wouldn't work in this context because like either you could go for early 19th century composers, which would be completely inappropriate for the tone of the movie because... The composers that were really big during the Romantic era were people like Rossini and Berlioz, which would be like way too heavy and melodramatic. Or you could have kind of the typical sort of Jane Austen pop music, which would be someone playing piano and having like a fun little jig or whatever for dancing around, which is wrong. And then the kind of the other two ways you can do a historical movie is you go fully anachronistic like Marie Antoinette, or you kind of have something in between where you have like a nice, subtle orchestral score, which is what Mark Bradshaw did. And mostly it's kind of classical instruments, but like he hasn't really hewn particularly close to that sort of romantic era. He's using a harpsichord, which is actually a bit too old. It's like a hundred years in the past by now, but he's also using kind of cellos and stuff. And he's using meditation bowls and he's using various techniques to just sort of make it feel weightless. I read an interview with him where he was like, yes, I'm using shimmering feather bowed violins to make it feel weightless. And it's like, lovely, love it. Very tender and vulnerable. But yeah, he's kind of playing around with stuff that like superficially, if you're listening to it and you're not super into classical music, it sounds classical while also not being like a recognisable piece of music. There's like little bits of sort of Mozart in there as well. But a lot of the time he is using either instruments that are too old or too new and in general it's just like crafted to fit the movie which is like the best way to do this sort of thing and it works very well yes it's great i think the harpsichord is the thing that sucks in my mind the most love a harpsichord but again i haven't seen this movie in two years so <laughs> bad homework for me i'm probably gonna wind up watching this later in this week because i really want to see this again having talked about it but it just was not uh logistically possible for this so i'll you know tweet my Treat my extra thoughts. But uh, yeah, we we recommend this highly, obviously. I love Jane. She's finally working on another movie. So that's very exciting I saw that and it has a really interesting cast. I was like, ooh, ooh. Yeah. And it's one of those sort of like original films where it has a one line description and you're like, that tells me fuck all. It was like, oh, it's a movie about a man who doesn't like his brother's wife. It's based sure. on a novel. Um, do you want to oh, okay. <laughs> share some of the people? who are attached. Oh, yeah. Okay, so the movie's called Power of the Dog, and it stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, Thomasin McKenzie, Cody Smith-McPhee, Francis Conroy, Keith Carradine, Peter Carroll, and Adam Beach. Those last people are not people I've heard of, but um, that's a lot of famous and or recognizable names in yes, there. Yes, and it takes place, I think, in Montana, so getting to hear Benedict Cumberbatch's American accent again will be a <gasps> thrill for oh, all of us. Oh, no, and Montana's a really specific yeah. one. But I'm, I'm obviously, you know, she must have seen something in him that I... Do not generally see. I mean, so. he has done a good American accent once because I remember being told about it, but it wasn't one of the films I've yeah. seen. I mean, I certainly am looking forward to it. I mean, she basically said when she was doing press for the first season of Top of the Lake, like, look, I'd love to make a movie, but 
it's just impossible. Yeah. And TV's easier right now. And Hollywood's just a fucking nightmare. Which, you know, I'm sure making this film was an unbelievably difficult process, just like logistically speaking, in terms of raising the money and everything. And then it didn't make any money, which is part of the problem, right? They should have been advertising this movie in like Teen Vogue. Seriously. I mean, if this was out now, Ben Wishaw would be uh, the new version of Call Me By Your Name Boy. I mean, I went, I was. I mean, he kind of was. I he went, was, but like. I, I was 19 when this came out and took all my friends to see it. And I remember us coming out and just being like, we, are, we were just like, you know, on a cloud. I mean, as soon as one experiences Ben Whishaw, one understands. Like, he is a marvel. His range. His range. Like, streaming was not at the same level in 2009, right? And I was so, like, needed to, you know, see everything that he had done. His other big thing was the BBC show... The Hour? What? No, that was later. It was, like, Criminal okay. Intent or something. He'd done some six-episode crime thing. <laughs> which With Peter Postlewaite. That was actually really good. It got remade into the, the Night Of on HBO a couple years ago here, which was not good. But I, for Christmas, requested the DVDs of this British show. Because that was the only way you could get it in America and, like, watch this thing. I still have them. Like, I and then was like, oh, Ben Wishaw, he's such a genius. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, teen girls were the market for this movie. I was barely a teen at that point. But still, you know, it hit the people it was designed to. But they just didn't, didn't get it to as many people as they should have. But now we have advocated for it to all of you. So hopefully, if you haven't seen it and you're still listening, you will go seek it out. Have you seen The Personal History of David Copperfield yet? It's not yet? out. Oh, fuck. I thought it was out on VOD in America now. I was just going to say that has... I think I mentioned in the episode we... Like the film festival episode last year, but he has... He plays Uriah Heep in that movie. And that is like the most repulsive, disgusting, horrible character you've ever seen. And I was like, Ben Wishaw, love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's just the best. I love him. It's a wild to me that he's now, what, like 40, basically? Because in my yeah. mind, he's just like a wood nymph, a sprite. <laughs> yeah, forever. I mean, he very much is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, anyway, thank you so much to Hannah for the excuse to talk about this movie. I always am trying to get people to watch it. So to have this platform to do so was great. So next week, we have another Patreon request thank you to all of you lovely people who are keep have these things keep coming in it is a film called the public starring and possibly directed by emilio estevez um i know basically nothing about this movie i had not even heard of it until our patron requested it but i googled it and had very good reviews and it looked really interesting so um i'm really looking it's got a very starry cast it's one of those movies where it's like an interesting and slightly unusual topic that's attracted loads of um actors many of whom i expect are probably interested in politics because it's about kind of um like a sit-in at a library there's like a group of homeless library patrons and the cast is like emilio estevez as morgan said but also you got Alec Baldwin, Christian Slater, Gina Malone, Taylor Schilling, Michael K. Williams, Jeffrey Wright, Gabriel Union. It's a cast. It's a cast. Yes. He did direct it as well, um, Emilio Estevez. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm really curious about this because it was so not on my radar at all. It came out last year and just, 
again, I think it got pretty good reviews, but just obviously wasn't promoted very much. So this will be a good excuse to catch up on that one. And that is available on, you know, various streaming platforms. So if you want to do your homework with us, you can do that before next week. And then we will have uh, the week following, we will be doing our film festival roundup episode. So you have that to look forward to. And then we have more Lord of the Rings coming down the line. Lord of the Rings. Yes. So lots of good stuff. Thank you so much as ever for listening. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, where I will start posting uh, reviews from the London Film Festival quite soon. And you can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor. You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast. And our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.